Around about mid-February, so a month later, Macaulay finds out that it's actually possible to get out of the window of his room. Convenient. Convenient, although I do wonder what he spent a month doing. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. In this episode, we have a rather interesting escape, because if not the shortest in distance, then definitely in duration. I would have thought so, yeah. Yeah, because it's very interesting. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than some of our last ones because it involves three individuals. Mm -hmm. So we need to cover the three, how they all came to be in the same place at the same time. And bring bring all the threads together. Exactly. And then we'll cover how they escaped. And interestingly for me, because it was something I hadn't even thought of before, is the way they got out just seemed, I don't want to belittle it, but it just seemed a lot easier than some of the other routes that people had. We're looking at three individuals here. So first guy was a company quartermaster sergeant, William Cook, who was of the 1st Battalion Parachute Regiment. And his capture happens in November 42. And then we'll go on to describe two crew members of the same Pathfinder squadron, which was acting squadron leader Vincent Cronkite Macaulay, DFC. Good name. And flight sergeant Frederick Kitchener Nightingale. No prizes for guessing who he's named after. Exactly. So Dave, let's start with Cook. Yeah, absolutely. So Company Quartermaster Sergeant William Cook was serving in Tunisia in November 1942 as part of the First Paris. Right. And what would he have been doing there at that time? So this was part of Operation Torch, which was essentially the joint allied invasion of North Africa. Right. With the aim of effectively creating a pincer around the Africa Corps. So under Rommel. So over in the east, over in Egypt and going into Libya, you had Montgomery leading an army over on, on that side and fighting in Alamein, places like that. Right, that's El, El, El Alamein. Exactly, yep. Back and forth around Tobruk and all, all this sort of stuff is going on around this time over on the east side of North Africa. Yeah. Operation Torch was the invasion of Morocco, Tunisia, mm-hmm. with the aim of effectively trapping Rommel's Africa Corps in the middle and squeezing them out of North Africa. And am I thinking Rommel was there because the Germans were trying to get access to oil? Obviously they need oil for their war effort to make fuel, drive their tanks, fly their planes. So that's why they were in Africa. That was part of it, okay. absolutely. So he, he, they were trying to break through into Egypt and beyond into the Middle East to try and get to the oil fields of the Middle East. Yeah. But there was also an element of the Africa Corps were in some ways actually there to support the Italians, which is quite often why you get prisoners of war captured in North Africa. Sent to Italy. It's being sent to Italy rather than being sent to Germany. The North African campaign, its roots are kind of in the Abyssinian campaign of pre-war, which was an Italian campaign. Okay. And so the North African campaign actually really sort of started and centred around the Italians and the Africa Corps of the Germans were sent in to reinforce that. Right. And effectively success for the Allies in North Africa would have opened up access for invasion of Sicily and up into Italy to open up effectively a southern front. Exactly, yeah. Right. The, so it's, the, it's the so-called soft underbelly, which was not the reality, but yes, that the idea was to push the, the access out of North Africa. Africa, and then from there launched the invasion of Sicily, 
Italy open up that second front. Yeah, so Cook's in a really important position. If the Allies can turn this round, then it's opening up so many opportunities from there. A- absolutely, yes. I mean, in many ways, 1942 is a major turning point of the war. Famously, Churchill said about Alamein, before Alamein we had no victories, and after Alamein we had no defeats, or worse to that effect. Brilliant. So that sets the scene as to where Cook was and what he was doing there. Yeah, exactly. He is fighting as part of the 1st Parachute Regiment. So on the 24th of November, he states, I was a member of a fighting patrol of my unit, commanded by Captain Stewart, and reinforced by two brain carriers and some men from the Lancashire Fusiliers, commanded by a Lieutenant Morrill. About 1100 hours, with the brain carriers in the lead, we were advancing down the road when we ran into a German ambush. For some reason, Lieutenant Morrill and the brain carriers left us. I can't possibly imagine why they scarpered after an ambush. So the opponents were German parachute infantry, armed with mortars, LMGs, and a 20mm anti-tank gun. By the sounds of it, they're quite significantly outgunned. Yeah. They've only got a couple of brain carriers and a few more men over and above the fighting patrol, so I think they're quite significantly outnumbered, yeah. outnumbered and outgunned here. Captain Stewart ordered us to fight to the last man in the last round, and that's a pretty suicidal order in my book. Yeah. Um, I'm all for standing your ground. Particularly when you're so outnumbered to start off with. Precisely. We managed to put out of action two LMGs and inflicted severe casualties upon the enemy, later finding out that we'd killed or wounded 57 Germans. So they have held their own, but as I say, quite a uh, suicidal order by the signs of it from Captain Stewart. However, nonetheless, they were so significantly outnumbered that an almost inevitability that they would be caught, and unfortunately Captain Stewart was killed in this. So they're significantly outnumbered. They have fought valiantly, by the Mm. signs of it, if they've managed to kill or wound 57 Germans. But by sheer weight of numbers, they've been outmanned and outgunned. And And now they've out-ammoed. They've exhausted all of their ways of fighting. (laughs) Cook, who's fluent in German, upon being captured, effectively said to the German lieutenant that hurry up with the unpleasant business of killing us all. At which point the the lieutenant actually got quite upset by this and burst into tears asking how could they think they would do such a thing. Now, the cynic of me would suggest that it's not beyond the realms of possibility that the German army would finish some people off fairly rapidly. They had some history Mm. in in that. So having been captured, the one remaining officer from the Lancashire Fusiliers who was unhurt was immediately segregated, taken off from... Which would be fairly standard, wouldn't it? Fairly standard, yeah, not unknown, not least because they'd want to interrogate the officer. the officer. And so it fell to Cook to remind all the other survivors to say nothing but their number, rank and name, which is, of course, standard. Standard, all yeah. they needed to provide to ensure that they were taken properly recorded. So having been captured, they were searched and interrogated separately, individually, by a German officer. He states that he was asked his name, rank and number, but otherwise the treatment was correct, their wounds were dressed. Oh, okay, so he received some medical some attention. Some medical attention. Relatively yeah. quickly. Exactly. Okay. So they were then taken by car to the German HQ and from there he was then transferred to Tunis where he received some further medical treatment to have a piece of bullet removed from his left hand side. Right, okay. So he's receiving pretty good medical care and receiving it quite rapidly as well. Yeah. From there he was transferred by air to Naples and handed over to the Italians and having arrived in Naples they were handed over to the Italian authorities and taken to a hospital on the waterfront. Sounds quite nice. Very nice. Bay of Naples is a lovely area. I'm sure they wouldn't have had a chance to visit Pompeii or Hercules Island. Probably not. Or Or even Capri, the island of Capri. Of course, I've been there, yeah. However, having arrived in this hospital, he states that we were put into a verminous cell and given no further medical treatment and only a little food. The next day, they were removed to another hospital near Naples in a place called Caserta. On the 29th of November, so five days after he was captured, he states that we received the first medical attention we'd had since quitting German hands. Conditions in the hospital were bad and the place was strictly guarded. And on the 31st of December, so two days later, he was taken to Faro Sabina, which was Campo 
April 54. So this is over a month since arriving in Italy. He's finally into a prisoner of war camp. And spent a lot of time in hospital, which isn't necessarily then potentially because of his wound. Maybe mm-hmm. they just didn't have that much space to put prisoner of war. I mean, there must have been a huge influx from the Tunisian campaign of Allied captive. Yes, there, there would have been. But I think given the speed with which he was receiving medical attention, I think we can probably assume that it was recovery. Is that because potentially it's easier to look after a patient in the hospital and not in the camp system? Yes, yeah, ah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So having arrived in Campo 54 at Faro Sabina, he did actually make an initial escape attempt. Mm-hmm. In the February of 1943, going into March, he started an escape attempt from the camp through a tunnel from the officer's latrine. Now, he wasn't an officer himself, but nonetheless, he still started a tunnel in the officer's latrine. This is not the most pleasant. No, it wouldn't have been my choice, but beggars can't be choosers, I suppose. True. However, he does state that, unfortunately, this tunnel was discovered on the 29th of March before it could be made use of. For that effort he received an award of 30 I like how he calls it an award Award, yeah he received an award of 30 days solitary confinement but on the 31st of March only two days later my physical condition was such that I was removed to hospital and on the 4th of April he was moved to another hospital in Rome having arrived in this hospital in Rome which we know is actually fairly centrally in Rome it's actually quite close to the Colosseum it's very close to the Colosseum yes pretty much can see the Colosseum (laughs) so having arrived there this is where he meets up with Macaulay and Nightingale. Which takes us on to... Which takes us on to them. How they got there. Exactly. Yeah, so now here enters our other two candidates for yep. this uh, for this escape. We've got Vincent Macaulay and Fred Nightingale. So these were both crew members of the same aeroplane. Mm-hmm. And it was a Stirling bomber that was involved on pathfinding missions. Okay. So who were the pathfinders? So the pathfinders are an interesting group of individuals. So effectively, Bomber Command wasn't having the best record for an accurate bombing campaign. No. So they took mainstream, if you want to call it that way, crews who were part of Bomber Command. And the ones who were having the most accurate or more accurate bombing successes were then trained and put into the pathfinders. Now, once you became a pathfinder, you were actually monitored because you could be put back into the mainstream. But they they were looking for crews that were highly professional and highly accurate at carrying out navigation at night. Okay. Now, the Germans obviously had plans that if you were going to go and bomb somewhere, they would start to light decoy fires out in the fields around the towns and things like this to draw more bombers in. So what was decided is you have a pathfinder force that would light the route to a target. So you had navigational flares that would be dropped on the way as markers to get there. And then you would have illuminating flares that would be dropped in the general area of the target to then pick out the target. Okay. And other pathfinders would then drop target get illuminating flares and they'd be different colors depending on the day so if the germans tried to start putting purple lights out in the fields and actually the colors for the day were red then you knew to bomb the red markers Mm. and effectively it meant that the main bomber force following up would be able to bomb the illuminating markers now at this particular time that was mostly navigation done on radio waves but they weren't the most accurate after this event had occurred we brought in a radar set that became a lot more accurate and bombing improved again but effectively these were an elite specialist bomber crew who would be specialising in accurate navigation to highlight the target for the following bomber stream. Okay. 
Now, these guys took off out of Oakington, which is actually not far from, for you, the war is over HQ. It's just down the road. There's a slight salient point is that if anyone's driven along the M11 just outside Cambridge, you've driven over the runways because they broke the runways up and uh, used it as hardcore in the M11. Yeah, you probably visited Oakington by mistake. I'll go straight into the description that these two guys gave because it's kind of complicated. They obviously both jumped out of the aeroplane and had slightly different stories but did end up meeting up. Whilst Cook had been captured in November we are now looking at December 1942 so a month after Cook has been captured he's in hospital so this is the 11th of December and they were being sent off from Oakington to bomb Turin they left approximately 1700 hours on the 11th they reached their target but the weather was very hazy and they had to descend down to 7000 feet to carry out their task properly well that would have been the task of identifying the target we were then hit by flak at about 2100 hours and the aircraft was set on fire we jettisoned and our flares and bombs over Turin and then set a course for home. So despite having been hit, they carried on to mark the target drop their own ordnance on the target and then set off to go back home. We were losing height and the pilot thought it was inadvisable to try to cross the Alps. So we turned southwest towards the French frontier. See where they were going here. Mm-hmm. They were obviously going to have to get out the aeroplane. They want to try and get onto that escape line that goes down through France. At about 21.45 hours, so this is 45 minutes after they've been set on fire, okay. as we were still losing height, the pilot gave the order to bail out. This is the point where our story split slightly for these two crew members because they're obviously in different parts of the aeroplane. First one probably really will go Macaulay. I destroyed my secret equipment before leaving the aircraft. Now, do we know what that was? We can guess. So there was only really three items of equipment that were used by the Pathfinders. And that was G, which was the first radio set, which basically relied on two signals being sent out. Mm -hmm. You measured a time delay effectively between the two signals, and you could then work out on a curve whereabouts you were. The second set was called Oboe, and that was similar to the G set, but what it also had is actually a transmitter within the aeroplane. So you received a signal, but you also transmitted a signal. And then depending on what was then received back you could work out where you were that was really the mainstay and in fact actually that the oboe unit really was probably the most accurate used throughout the entire war yeah. they did bring in a radar set that came in later on but i think that was later sort of march february march 43 so after this had happened they started to use that and that became fairly standard for long-range operations because these radio sets if it's being transmitted from effectively england you're only getting about 350 400 miles of useful accuracy mm-hmm. before then it gets very difficult to measure these thing so you needed that radar set particularly when you're now bombing Italy from the UK mm. it's a fair old trek we're talking south of Switzerland here in one go I suspect it would either have been a G set or an oboe set okay. but either way they wouldn't have wanted any of that information getting into the German hands fair so enough. whilst the aeroplane's on fire and they've been told to bail out he then destroys his own equipment okay. destroyed my secret equipment before leaving the aircraft my parachute did not open properly and I must have been unconscious when I landed at 23.35 hours I regained consciousness and found myself with a dislocated right shoulder lying in a ditch in an orchard. I had great difficulty in freeing myself from my parachute harness and had not sufficient strength to conceal either my parachute or my May West. I heard troops moving about close by. I opened my escape box took a Horlicks tablet, which obviously would have been like a high energy, Mm. intense tablet, and got out my compass. With its aid, I began
began walking west. I could not get my tunic off or remove my badges, but I managed to pull my trousers over my flying boots. So he's done his best that mm-hmm. he can to assimilate. Uh, dissimilate. Yeah. Now, similarly, Nightingale, who had obviously also left the aircraft, he bailed out on his way down. He lost his left flying boot. He landed in his tree, breaking his left ankle. So now we've got two injured guys. Yeah. We've got one with a dislocated shoulder, one with a broken ankle. I saw the plane fall in flames nearby. I took my parachute down and buried it. Unlike Macaulay, he managed to hide his bits and pieces. I then removed my badges and opened my escape box. I decided to walk northwest with the aid of my compass in the hope of ultimately reaching France. In a little while, I met McDonald, who was one of the other crew members. He had taken off his tunic and was wearing a sweater. Evidently, these guys' first actions was to try and demilitarize themselves. <laughs> so they'd, they'd done it to varying degrees of uh, success. I had great difficulty in walking. However, he had made a pair of crutches with some sticks. So they're now helping each other yeah, out. From yeah. So these guys too ran into the Germans. So there's a motorcycle patrol passed quite near us and I had a little later I heard some shots in the distance. At about 0300 hours on the 12th I felt I could not go on and I suggested to McDonald that he should leave me and should take my escape kit to supplement his own. He refused to leave me or to take my kit so we lay up in some bushes. At about 1100 hours we came out of the bushes and were seen by some peasants. After an hour later we were captured by some soldiers. They could speak French which I can speak a little, they took us to a farm where we were given some cognac and coffee. That had been quite welcomed, I imagine. I <laughs> thought so, yeah. have <laughs> been shot down the night before. About noon, we were taken by car to what appeared to be a military hospital in a town I cannot identify. So these guys have now been captured. So that's Nightingale captured. Macaulay, on the other hand, well, he was still walking. He had set off and it said, in a short time, I reached a canal about 15 feet wide with steep sides. I realised that in my condition, I could not cross it. I threw my pistol into it and sat down in a field close by. In about an hour, some Italian soldiers came. They shouted at me and fired their rifles in the air over my head. I gave myself up. They spoke some kind of French dialect of which I could understand a few words. I think I then must have fainted. So he's evidently in some extreme pain here and is going to need some medical attention. Yep. The soldiers took all my belongings from me except my watch. They then fetched a stretcher and carried me to a house where an old woman gave me a drink of sherry. Lovely. Excellent. Yeah. So, so one Drinks th- all right. Drinks all round. <laughs> Later, I was taken on to the headquarters of number seven commando, but uh, it was evidently taken somewhere where he could be questioned quite considerably of what mm-hmm. he was doing. So on that point we've seen in other episodes whereby the escaper may have been from an elite force such as Jack Byrne in the SAS where yes. they were a highly prized prisoner of war and therefore were heavily interrogated. Would the Pathfinders have fallen into that remit? You said earlier that they were a specialist force, therefore they were doing some highly skilled, and I assume they were extremely highly trained airmen. Would they have fallen into that realm whereby the knowledge and intelligence that they may have been able to glean from the Pathfinders would have been so highly valued that they would have been heavily interrogated or not? Completely. However, the difficulty would have been there would have been nothing physically on the crew that would identify the crew as being Pathfinders. Okay. The Germans would have to have knowledge of the aircraft and having because obviously when something gets shot down whether it be British or German the opposite side is obviously going to crawl all over that and try and get as much information as they can out Absolutely. the wreck now we can potentially assume that this being the following day the wreck has evidently been found the fire has been put out and potentially the the remnants of a G or an Obol have been identified correct if there is something then of interest in that aeroplane mm-hmm. they're going to try and locate the crew and then find out what it's got in it 
The only other thing could have been that if the airplane had been seen to drop flares, they might have wanted to get that. But we were talking 45 minutes between it being shot down, carrying out its mission, and then jumping out. So it's unlikely that. So it's more likely that they're trying to find the crew from an airplane that potentially had some in- interesting equipment within it. Okay. So yes, in that aspect, if they could have tied the crew to an airplane that had some interest, then yes, they're going to be interrogated quite considerably about how it works, what it does, because they need to know. So he's been taken for this interrogation, and then it says here his boots were taken off and he was laid on the table. A doctor came and gave me some kind of anaesthetic. Always a little bit suspect at times, but yeah. this is effectively his first bit of treatment after some sherry. When I came to, there was an officer with a notebook and a black shirt in civilian clothes standing beside me. The officer asked me a number of questions in English, such as the type of my aircraft, my squadron, number, route, target, bomb load, the number of men in the crew, and their names. That's interesting in itself, because the Sterling carried eight crew members. Mm-hmm. Now, we know, obviously, as, as a result, that we know later on that the pilot was killed. Mm-hmm. He didn't get out the aeroplane. So there were effectively seven crew members on the run. The Germans would have known it was a bomb. They would have found bits and pieces. They would have known it's a Sterling. So it's interesting asking these names. I told told him the type of aircraft and the number of men in the crew. So interesting extra information he didn't have to give. They told him that they'd already captured one of the crew members and that his shoulder would be attended to to the next day. Now, a dislocated shoulder, effectively that would be two days on. That's going to be painful. Yeah. So potentially maybe they're using this aspect of the pain to try and draw a little bit more. I'd wonder that if anaesthetic, bit woozy, not totally compassment as having just come round if they were using that we'll state, of, to you tomorrow. Yeah, state of mind. Exactly. Uh, yeah, to just get you know, loosen lips. Indeed. So he was then put into a cell with two guards, and actually one of the other crew members was put in a similar cell next to him. Uh, he was given some food, but could get no sleep. There was a man in my cell writing at a desk. One of my guards, who could speak French, which I can speak a little, asked me several further questions. He doesn't say what they are or what it was about. And about 0800 on the 12th, an officer brought another crew member into my room, but we were not allowed to converse. I was then interrogated by an English-speaking intelligence officer who had come from Turin. He asked if I'd had a pistol and I told him that I had thrown this away. He also asked me my address in Canada, which I gave him. He told me he liked English people, but that his own house had been destroyed by the RAF raids. He added that the Italians had found our aircraft and that Nightingale and one of the other crew members had been captured, which we knew already, Mm -hmm. because, spoiler alert, we've we've already said that he's been captured. So back into Nightingale again. That evening, he had been taken by car to an aerodrome about 15 miles from town where they found two other crew members, which means that now all of these crew members have now been caught. I was interrogated here and was asked some questions about the aircraft which I did not answer. I was then examined by a doctor and taken to a hospital. So he is now receiving hospital treatment. Mm -hmm. On the 14th of December, my leg was put in plaster. So that's three days with a broken ankle. ankle. Painful. Next day, the same intelligence officer described by Macaulay, who was the one asking a question about the kit, asked me similar questions and produced a Red Cross form that famous Red Cross form again that we've come across containing a space for my squadron number and the call number not that that exists of Mm -hmm. my station I did not comment and fill these spaces on the 22nd of December so that's just over a week later he was taken by car and later by train to Turin so back at Turin they're back in Turin but they were bombing a couple of weeks beforehand so Macaulay meanwhile he's awaiting his his shoulder so 1100 hours his fellow crew member was taken out of the room and I was taken by car by a senior officer to a military hospital I arrived about 11.30 and was put into a single room. Three guards, however, also slept in it and there were generally three people there throughout the day. So he's not going to be getting out of here. 
He also still has a dislocated shoulder. Yeah. At about 1,600 hours, I was taken to have my shoulder x-rayed. And while this was being done, several of the Italian patients came and jeered at me. That night, a doctor set my dislocated shoulder. He did this in a manner which I thought deliberately brutal, mm. which is fairly graphic. Gruesome. Yeah. Yes. He and several other onlookers jeered at me during the process. So none of this would have been particularly pleasant. He does say, however, that the sisters in the hospital, on the other hand, were extremely kind to him. The next day, an intelligence officer came to see him and produced a Red Cross form which contained a space for my squadron number, that famous Red Cross mm-hmm. form again, and my station. He told me that the pilot had been killed and the aircraft destroyed and they'd captured all the other crew. Okay. So we now know that all of these guys have been held. They're all receiving hospital treatment. He asked me a number of questions about the armament, petrol load and speed of my aircraft, how long my flight from England had taken and what methods of navigation were used in bad weather and most insistently, what was my station? I did not answer any of these questions. On the 14th of December, my right arm was put in a plaster cast. Later, I was told that Nightingale was in the same hospital, but I was not allowed to see him. On the evening 22nd, which is the same day that Macaulay was moved, he was also taken to the train station and on to Turin. At Turin, we had to wait for about an hour and a half, and during this time, some Italian soldiers came and shook their fists at us and made various offensive remarks. And now we've got Macaulay and Nightingale together in Turin. So, having got to Turin on the 22nd of December, they were then almost immediately taken to Rome by express train, uh, arriving there about 3.30 in the afternoon on the 23rd, so the next day. Later that afternoon, so around about 6 o'clock, we're heading into evening now, they were then taken to decontamination and transit camp for RAF prisoners of war just north of Rome, so about 20-30 miles north of Rome. Which is interesting in itself, isn't it? Because Mm. they've really just spent the last few days in hospitals. Yeah. So why would they necessarily be having to be decontaminated? Or would this be a standard procedure for prisoners of war entering their It may be the transit system? camp side of things that they're looking at rather than... It's, it says there's a decontamination and transit camp. So ah, it may I have see. been a transit camp that they were going into rather than decontamination. I see, okay. And it does state, you know, that they were searched on arrival, but they managed to get their escape compasses through this search, which I thought was quite impressive, actually. Yeah, which probably would have been the little, the button ones, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, I imagine the, so, the yeah. compasses in the uniform button. Yeah, and were almost immediately segregated from other prisoners of war, including other members of their crew. Right. And so it's just the two of them at this stage, which is presumably why they ended up escaping together. Yeah, except one is obviously a flight sergeant and one is a acting squadron leader. So yeah. it does not seem a little bit strange that they still being kept together when obviously one a much more senior rank than the other would normally have been segregated it is strange i i don't have an answer as to why but i think the reality is we find them segregated together i, I don't know why. maybe because of their injuries and the yeah, fact that they've been treated in the yeah. same hospital so yeah exactly so he, he then does state we were put in a small room together which we searched very carefully for microphones we could see no sign of these but we did not discuss any service matters which is probably wise so they've arrived there on the 23rd of december so he then states that during Christmas, many of the guards were very drunk. A number of them expressed their resentment of the bombing of Turin by the RAF. Now, that wasn't particularly uncommon. We know in Germany in particular, there was a lot of resentment towards the RAF, arguably more so than the other services because they effectively brought a front line yeah. to the home front in Germany, if you like. So we're, we're seeing a similar expression. And Turin's a very historic city, of course. In fact, a lot of Italy is very historic. There's a it is, lot yeah. of old buildings in Italy. There is, yes. However, because of the severity of their injuries, they felt they weren't in the position to take advantage of the drunk guards. So in effect, you're seeing that their injuries are actually 
essentially denying them the opportunity to escape here. Yeah. Which is a bit of a shame. Christmas clearly offered up an opportunity by virtue of the of course, but drunk. Recovering broken ankle and a dislocated shoulder and in plaster cast. So you're going to stand out a little bit if you try to escape. Exactly. Yeah. In plaster. Yeah. And so the very next day, Macaulay is interrogated again. And this time they state that they know that they took off from Oakington. The implication there I'm getting is that one of the others is let slip. Yeah. And certainly the interrogators are starting to build up some intelligence and idea of what's going on here. Which they would, of course, do. I think both sides would have picked together what they could in order to lure more information out of any other crew members that were a bit more resistant to talking. Of course. And so having, you know, they do claim that they obtained this information from some papers found in the field near the crashed aircraft. That seems unlikely because I feel like that's not the sort of information that would have been lying around in the plane anyway. Not likely. Plus we knew it crashed and burned. So and it it had to have blown out and floated down. So on the 29th of December, so another three days later, they're taken to another military hospital in Rome. Ah. In fact, this is now the same military hospital that Cook is in unbeknowingly waiting for them. So having arrived at the end of December, 29th of December, it does state that we were not allowed to meet until mid-January, so a couple of weeks later. But when they did meet up, and we're talking about Nightingale and Macaulay here, yeah. when they did meet up, we began discussing the escape plans in Macaulay's room, so almost immediately planning their escape. Yes. So it's almost like they've been sitting on it, just waiting for the right opportunity, and then they find themselves in this hospital in the centre of Rome, and they feel, this is it, this is the opportunity. And so the room that Macaulay's in, he actually the sole occupant of this room which is very convenient yes uh, so they're meeting up in this in his room in Macaulay's room and discussing their escape plans around about mid-February so an, a month later Macaulay finds out that it's actually possible to get out of the window of his room convenient convenient although I do wonder what he spent a month doing <laughs> <laughs> And then another month after that, on the 20th of March, they find out that they were about to be moved to another prisoner war camp. So this is the incentive to now get out. Yeah, they now have a timeline. There is an incentive for them to get out, and so they immediately start preparing for an escape from the hospital. So yeah, so the fact that they're now preparing to escape. Now for me, with my limited knowledge of particularly the Italian campaign, I was thinking where on earth are they going to go? And I think this is the main fascinating thing about this escape is that there was a route out from Rome, effectively the middle of Italy, mm-hmm. to be able to get away. And I think this is what stands this out as a as a fantastic escape, different from all of the other escape routes that we've looked at previously. Yes, absolutely. On the 4th of April, Cook was transferred to the same hospital, as we've said. As we know, Macaulay and Nightingale have been there since the end of December, so they've now been there four months and now Cook turns up. And he states that almost immediately I I found out that squadron leader Macaulay and Sergeant Nightingale were also in this hospital in the planning and escape. I resolved to join them if possible. A few days after that, he was able to walk again. Mm -hmm. So he's been building up strength. He's now able to walk. But he had constant guards around him. So together, so we're talking about Macaulay, Nightingale and Cook, who are now all planning their escape together at this stage, started pulling together a certain amount of material for civilian clothes. And the plan was to climb out of the window of Macaulay's room, make their way over to the hospital wall and drop into the street beyond. Now, you're saying that they're in the middle of Rome. Yes. And they obviously want to make at least to a neutral country. Which ordinarily, you're thinking Switzerland. Correct. Which is a long way away. A long way away. However, there is a neutral country in the middle of Rome. The Vatican City. That's right. So this is where they are planning to head to. They are planning to make a break out of a hospital in Rome and make their way to the Vatican City. Which is fantastic. It is. 
But geographically, how far are we talking? About five kilometres. Three miles. Which is incredible. Yes. And this is what we mean when we said at the start that this is probably the shortest escape of the entire war. <laughs> because they are literally travelling about an hour and a half, three miles through the centre of Rome to the Vatican City. Yeah. I mean, on a normal day, if I was out running, I'd run that distance in 20 minutes. Now, mm. I appreciate that these guys are not it's, that fit. Yeah. They're injured. But still, they would be able to effectively see freedom because their their hospital is quite close to the Colosseum, mm-hmm. almost touching distance from mm-hmm. the Colosseum so we're not talking that far no no not at all I mean in effect you know you go past the Colosseum through the forum head up towards the Pantheon turn left and cross, cross the, the river Tiber. And, yeah and yeah. you're there yeah exactly so the plan was to get there on either a Wednesday or a Saturday because they'd heard that the Pope held audiences on those days with many people attending now this in and of itself is not a bad idea no because you can basically gather I mean, in a crowd yeah there'll be crowds making their way to the Vatican City yes the only problem was that this information was in incorrect and that the audience were held on no fixed days however the idea was quite a good one and was clearly the inspiration for them heading over to the vatican on the 10th of april so less than a week after cook has arrived Mm -hmm. they make their first escape attempt they get out of the window make their way over to the wall and when they get to the wall they suddenly realize there's a 25 foot drop Ah. on the other side now this is not a problem for two of them but Nightingale who broke his ankle is not able to make this drop no so they make the decision to make their way back to the Macaulay's room and gather together some rope from Red Cross parcel string yeah and they actually managed to get together about 100 foot of string which is reasonable amount it's quite considerable and over the next couple of days they plait the string together to make a rope which another POW did having pulled that rope together they then decide to make their break on the 14th of April yeah however on the 13th of April the day before they were deciding to make their second attempt six additional prisoners came into the hospital the result being that the beds were then full and the guards on full alert Ah. so this is pretty unfortunate development for them nonetheless at 2.30 in the morning they once again make their break out of the window they make their way over to the wall and on this occasion they manage to get over the wall and scale down on this makeshift rope that they've pulled together from the Red Cross string. However, because of the presence of a Carbonieri, the Italian police force, they had no time to actually remove the rope. Although they managed to get out of the hospital and escape, they had to leave behind evidence of their breakaway. Of course, which is never ideal. Never ideal, but nonetheless they had very little option in this. So they start making their way towards the Vatican and they'd arranged to speak to each other using Italian names and speaking in German because... They spoke a bit of that. They spoke a bit of German, you know, Cook spoke some German, so if they needed to, they could try and fob their way through it. And they were also planning to walk Cook slightly ahead of the other two, so that if he got stopped... He could do the talking. Yeah. Yeah. And they could make their escape if needs be. Yeah. Not a bad plan. No, not a bad plan at all. They're fairly blasé about it, because they say by 3.45 in the morning, they arrived at the River Tiber near the Pont Sant'Angelo. The Pont Sant'Angelo is the bridge that goes over to the Castel Sant'Angelo. It's now a museum. Right. But the Castel Sant'Angelo is the old fort that the popes converted as a fortification... Back in the day. Back in the day, absolutely. And it's actually still connected by a fortified corridor. To the Vatican. To the Vatican, yeah. Yeah. Which you can actually see. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're very much in touching distance Very much in touching distance. After just just an hour and a quarter. An hour and a quarter, yeah. So they've managed to walk through the centre of Rome and cross the river in just over an hour in the middle of the night. Yes. The Vatican and Castel Sant'Angelo are actually connected by a long, wide boulevard. 
So having kind of got to Castel Sant'Angelo, he asked for directions at quarter to four in the morning. Now, I thought this was quite an unnecessary risk because A, you're putting yourself at risk of interrogation or being questioned or being considered suspicious, but B, you can't miss it. Yeah, and if you're pretending <laughs> to be Italian, yeah. you probably ought to know where it is. Yeah, because it is right there. It is at the other end of this long, wide road and there's a big colonnade at the other end marking the territory of the Vatican. Yes. So as I say, I thought this was quite an unnecessary risk. Nonetheless, they managed to fob their way through this and got the directions up towards St. Peter's. Having done that, they get up to the, the Vatican buildings and they go up to a Swiss guard and approach them and ask in French if he was Swiss. And on receiving the reply that he was, they basically immediately declared themselves. Yes. So they're on neutral ground. The guy's Swiss, which is of course neutral. The yep. Swiss guard, of course, are the guard of the Vatican City and the Pope himself. Of course. And so are immediately taken in as escaped prisoners of war and handed over to a gendarme inside the Vatican City. So they're now safely ensconced inside the Vatican. And protected. And protected, indeed. To the point that actually later one of the gendarmes says that an Italian carbonieri had come up to the gendarme and asked for these three escaped prisoners of war to be handed over and that the request had been refused. Excellent. So they've arrived on the morning of the 14th of April. On the 24th of April, they're visited by Hugh Montgomery from the British legation to the Holy See and given civilian clothes and shoes. And arrangements were made to help them back. Now, Hugh Montgomery is a fairly important name Mm -hmm. in the escape line that went through the Vatican City. Right. Because there was an escape line that went through the Vatican City. Okay. Now, it's probably not too unfair to say that the Catholic Church hasn't always come out of the Second World War history with its reputation untainted. But on this one, they come out of it fairly well. Right. So there was, in effect, three individuals who were in charge of this escape line that that went through the Vatican. Mm -hmm. A gentleman called Hugh Flattery, who was a Monsignor, and he was an Irishman who, while he had no particularly great loyalty to the Brits, took pity upon the prisoners of war that were fighting the war right? and took it upon himself to help develop an escape line and protect those who were being hunted down by the fascists. Okay. In addition, there was a major called Major Sam Derry who was an escapee himself. When he managed to escape and got to the Vatican, he was then effectively placed in charge of operations for this escape line. So he was the third of the Holy Trinity. Oh, I see what you did there. Thank you. <laughs> they are all there based in the Vatican they are for indeed. prisoners that arrive having escaped. Now there's a whole great history and ins and outs of how this line developed and fought the war as they helped prisoners of war escape and they did help huge numbers of prisoners of war and evaders get through Italy both before and after the armistice and is well worth looking into. But that is the basis that there is an escape line that went through the Vatican City and was based in the Vatican City and were protected by the neutrality of the Vatican City. Fantastic. And that is where these three guys have ended up and are being assisted by this escape line. Returning to their story, on the 25th of April, they received an audience with the Pope Pius XII. Now, Cook is a Roman Catholic, and although Macaulay and Nightingale are Protestants, they were also received into his audience, Mm -hmm. and the Pope gave them his benediction, best wishes, and presented them all with rosaries. Wow, and wish them well on their way. Indeed. And so on the 7th of June, nearly two months after they arrived, they travelled by air to Barcelona and then to Madrid, and then from there travelled on to Lisbon, and from there taken 
Back the to standard the UK. route back to exactly. The UK. Well, I think that's absolutely superb. Sadly, of course, I mean, I do like to look into what happens to these guys after they get back. This is a typical thing, as we've come across on many ones before. Mm-hmm. There's actually very little there information is, yeah. about what they do. What we do know is that Cook, actually, for this escape, he was awarded the DCM, so okay. the Distinguished Conduct Medal. I think, believe so, yeah. That's right. He then went on to actually serve. He transferred from the 1st Battalion into the 9th Battalion of the 1st uh, Parachute Regiment. And uh, he then was actually at Market Garden. And he was injured in a glider landing actually as part of Market Garden the next time that he crops up in any of the information I could find he was living down in Australia in the 1950s so okay. we, we know he survived the war but I actually know very little of what happened to him thereafter it's the same with Macaulay so Macaulay had got a DFC at this time for a number of operations having flown in Bomber Command on the mm-hmm. main force he then did get a further DFC in the July of 1943 but strangely he wasn't presented with it until June of 1948 so okay. being a Canadian it's quite possible as we discussed earlier, to recuperate potentially yeah yep. uh, and even gone, maybe gone into training as mm-hmm. an elite pathfinder to train the next group of people coming through he next came up on my radar in 1967 in Montreal but okay. sadly I've not managed to find anything from then and Fred Nightingale disappears off the radar completely I could find nothing of Fred Nightingale after his return so if anyone out there does know what happened to any of these guys we would love to hear from you absolutely please do get in contact and our contact details will come up in a moment Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.